Uh, we're in this series uh, called Heaven, and if you've been seeing the artwork for it, we put it in quotation marks. And the reason that we did that is because I think we use the word heaven all the time and we have no idea what we're talking about. A lot of misconceptions about what the Bible says heaven is. And so if it is to be our ultimate hope, if this is, is where all of human history, cosmic history is headed, and we don't know what that is, uh, it's going to affect how we live here now. So we, we, we're, taking, we're doing a mini-series on heaven. Um, the first week we talked about why heaven is a part of God's plan, and then we took a week break. We had a guest uh, preacher, did a great job last week, Sean Post. Thank you to him. And, and now we've got a few more weeks to go in this little mini-series where we're, we're asking the five W's and one H, the what, where, why, how, who of heaven, okay? So this week we're on the what of heaven. So what is heaven like? It's a great question. We've got a lot of work to do, uh, as we always do, because we just do. There's, there's a lot to know. It's a big, if you might imagine, a big idea, and uh, we need to get going. So uh, before we do that, let me give you a quick reminder of why it's, it's important to figure out what is heaven like. If you're like me, you're often faced with anxiety, existential crisis. In fact, that can become so the norm in our lives that we don't even realize it's happening. That we are trying so hard to chase success, to fill our lives with meaning. We chase experience, we chase significance. And what we're really trying to do is we're trying to squeeze every last drop of toothpaste out of this life. True or not true? I could do this, and I could do this, and then I could say I did this, and then I could post it online, and everyone would know that I live a full life. Feel that anxiety? I know I do. I know it seems like nothing comes fast enough. Time is always running out. Someone else is always experiencing more life than me. i got to get more out of this life. I don't think that's the way God wants us to live. I don't think that's his plan for us. I don't think he wants us to be feeling like the clock is ticking. And we've got to get as much out of this as we can to make it all worth it. So how do you experience freedom from this kind of constant pressure, this constant weight How do we feel freedom so that we can glorify God and enjoy everything that He has given to us for this life? Well, the answer is, we need to start thinking more about the next life. Let me give you an illustration here. I have a two-year-old son named Grayson. Many of you know that. He's a little redhead running around oftentimes trying to steal your wallets. (laughs) If you don't know where your wallet is, thank you. We need that to keep the church going. Um, So, uh, Grayson's got, he loves cars. He's got a ton of toy cars. And these cars to him, they're of great value. In fact, if somebody takes one of his cars and he hasn't let you borrow it, he hasn't looked you in the eye and said, feel free, you are going to cause him some serious anxiety because he's 
worried he's going to lose this thing of great value. So don't mess with his cars. Now here's the problem. At some point, Grayson's going to grow up and he's going to realize those toy cars were very inexpensive, a dime a dozen, but you know what? He's got a new car, some power wheels, and now that's his new item of value, and he's going to hold on to it. And you're going to bring your kids over, and he's, they're going to try to get into his car, and unless he really likes them, he's going he's to feel anxiety. Why is somebody, are they going to steal my car? Well, you know what? Then he's going to realize one day that, that that Power Wheels car is relatively inexpensive. It's not actually worth that much. It's not that great because he's going to get his first real car. It's going to be like a 2006 Ford Focus. It's going to be sweet. Now remember, this is going to be in 2031, so <laughs> it's just the life. That's why he's stealing wallets, okay? <laughs> Life's tough. Bastard's kid. And he's going to say, man, now this is a real car. Unreal how fast this thing goes. 2006 Ford Focus. And he's going to be cruising around. He's going to think like he's pretty hot stuff. He's going to roll into the high school parking lot. We're probably going to have to hold him back a grade, so he's going to be real old for his <laughs> grade. He'll be the first to drive. He's going to roll in. All of his friends are going to be like, this is something, man. And he's going to feel pretty good about himself until he realizes when he gets his first job that that 2006 Ford Focus was not that valuable. <laughs> and he's going to love that new first car that he buys when he gets his first job. And he's going to say, wow, now this Remember those toys I used to play with? This is something else. But you know what? He's going to get a lot of anxiety when he compares his first car to all the investment bankers and their first car. Making 200 grand right out of school. He's probably going to be an accountant like his dad. Not a bad career, but you're not going to get your best car with the first job. And then you know what? He'll probably become a big-time CEO and maybe a doctor. Lots of medical professionals in this church. Feel free to nudge him along towards that end. And he's going to get a really nice car. Maybe he'll be really successful. Maybe God will bless him and he'll get a Porsche 911. Nothing wrong with that. He's going to be like, now this is it. I finally arrived. I finally arrived. And he's going to look back on those toy cars that he cared so much about that he got in fights over that he hoarded away and hid in nooks and crannies in his room and had tantrums about when he couldn't find one. And he's just going to realize, oh man, I had so much anxiety about those. And they're really not much of anything at all. I think that's what's going to happen when we see heaven, when we see what it's really like. And we're going to be like, oh my gosh, why did I get so wigged out about taking that extra vacation or, or making that, ex, that next 10 grand? Or why was I so worried? That and compared to this? So some people also ask, okay, isn't, isn't talking so much about heaven kind of escapist? Always thinking about what's coming next. Live in the now. Well, I'll answer this question with another question that C.S. Lewis asked. He said this, Who talks the most about escapism? 
And then he answers, the jailers. Is it escapist for a baby to wonder about life outside the womb? Is it escapist for someone on a long ocean voyage to wonder about landfall? The answer is it's only escapist if heaven is a lie. So those who claim that speaking and talking of heaven is escapist have probably already decided that it doesn't exist. C.S. Lewis also observed, if you read history, you will find that Christians who did the most for the present world were just those who thought the most about the next. For the apostles themselves, who set afoot the conversion of the Roman Empire, the great men who built up the Middle Ages, the English evangelicals who abolished the slave trade, all left their mark on this earth precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this. And then he says this. It's a famous line. He says, aim for heaven and you'll get earth thrown in. Aim for earth and you'll get neither. So as I try to do my best to describe for you tonight what the Bible says that heaven will be like, I do so with two senses running through my veins. The first is the sense of excitement. I have this sense of excitement all, all week. I said, this is the greatest job in the world to get to read about, study, think about heaven. I'm so excited because so many people, maybe you're one of these people, you never want to think about heaven. And you're missing out on something that's so vital, that's something so important to this life and to your faith and to your relationship with God. And you're probably not thinking about it because you've been taught the wrong thing. So I'm so excited to clear up what heaven is like. Uh, Former prime minister in the UK, about the turn of the 20th century, David Lloyd George said this, When I was a boy, the thought of heaven used to frighten me more even than the thought of hell. I pictured heaven as a place where, pe- uh, where time would be perpetual Sundays with the perpetual services from which there would be no escape. Many of you probably feel <laughs> the tension of that. Well, I don't think they're going to let me speak much in heaven, so getting it all out here. So you don't have to worry about that. It is not going to be an unending church service. That's a great hope. <laughs> There's so much more. So the second sense is the sense of humility. How can I possibly do justice to describing the infinite reality of God's creativity? The beauty that is sure to be in this place we call heaven. The unending glories of being with God. The answer is I cannot. But, just like I can never love my wife in the way she deserves to be loved, I try. I try my best, and though I can't fully grasp it, though I won't be able to articulate it, I won't in some senses be able to do it justice, I can try, and something will come, something good, something hopefully that will move the ball down the field, at least gain some field position, because the enemy doesn't want us to talk about this great hope. He wants to remind us that this is all there is, and to eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Don't waste your time on these 
God questions, these things above. So now, before we get into the nitty-gritty, which won't end up being that nitty-gritty, but before we get into the almost nitty-gritty, not nitty-gritty, let me say a few general comments about this really important study of heaven, okay? I need to frame how we do this because if we do it wrong, we'll get some, some bad answers. So the first is this. What heaven are we talking about here, okay? When I talk about heaven today, I'm primarily talking about what you might call the eternal heaven, okay? Um, you might also hear me call it the new earth or the new creation, as opposed to what we would call the intermediate heaven. And we'll talk about this next week, which is when we die, where we go immediately. What I'm talking about here today is what is heaven like the new earth, the new creation. They're not the exact same thing. Next week we'll be talking about this intermediate phase, so um, we'll get there. We'll, we'll kind of come back to it and talk about how that differs. They're, they're related, but they're not the same thing, and, and lots of times we miss the greater heaven when we only talk about the intermediate. So when I'm talking about heaven today, just assume I'm talking about the ends to God's plan, where everything is headed, not the pit stop along the way, Okay? More distinction next week. The second thing here is we have to understand when we talk about the things of heaven, we have to understand the power of figurative language, the power of metaphor, the power of analogy. And I'll try to do my best to shed light on these ultimate realities of heaven. But I must admit, and we must admit, that we are only able to see certain things, these real realities that will be when we actually see them in and of themselves. That's the only time we'll be able to fully grasp it. So for now, we see a picture of a picture of a thing. But as I said before, that is not nothing. Praise be to God that he's giving us, giving us pictures of pictures through language that we might understand, if only dimly, what is to come. So, so when we read these depictions of heaven, we have to realize that, that we're using this figurative language, okay? So let me, let me give you an example of what I mean here. Revelation 21, 21 through 25 says this. Uh, actually, nope, just 21, 21. And the 12 gates, talking about the new Jerusalem, the new creation, and the 12 gates were 12 pearls, each one gate made of a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold, transparent as glass. Are the gates made of pearl? Maybe, but not the kind of pearl that we know. They might kind of look like pearl, but look what he says. It's made of a single pearl. So I looked it up. The biggest pearl that's ever been discovered is two feet in diameter. Not a very great gate. So we're probably talking about something new, and we'll talk about that. It's figurative language. Are the streets made of actual gold? Some of you are going to be very upset. Well, I don't know. It also says that the gold is transparent as glass. Is that a thing? I don't. He's trying to use language to explain something that's almost inexplainable because it's like something new, but, but yet kind of like something old. And so... so Man, this is tough, but we know, wow, if it's like transparent gold, that's going to be something else. Here's the point. I think 
Um, this is figurative language, trying to describe something that is so new, it's almost indescribable, but yet it's not indescribable. So, so we have to understand, this doesn't mean that, oh my gosh, we can't know anything, because language, all sorts of language, is deeply figurative. So, so being figurative doesn't mean that it's incapable of re- referring to real-world realities or conveying truth. It's only saying that we only are scratching the surface. Figurative language is a very natural way to talk. This is how we understand things. Understanding itself often means placing something into its proper context, giving it its proper set of relationships to other things. So Christian, there's a Christian thinker named Alan Jacobs says it this way, we always and inevitably strive to understand one thing in relation to the thing we have already known. That is just the way language works. It's no different with the Bible. So here's an example. Marco Polo, you guys know this guy? Great inventor of a children's pool game. Also a great explorer from Italy. And when he returned to Italy from the courts of Kublai Khan, the great Mongolian uh, warrior, prince, emperor kind of guy, he described this world to his audience that they had never seen before. And in a sense, they could not understand without seeing it with their own eyes. So they had to use the eyes of their imagination. But you see, it's not that China was an imaginary realm, but it was just very different from Italy. And yet, these are two locations on planet Earth inhabited by human beings, and so they have much in common as well. So Marco Polo used the reference point of Italy for much of his basis for understanding China. And then he explained the differences. In fact, I'm just realizing this might be why the game was made. He says one thing, Marco, and then you say Polo. And you see how far, but yet how close these things are. I don't know if that's why the game was created. Could be. (laughs) So God God is always using human writers, the writers of Scripture, to do the same thing. And we see the Bible presenting heaven in many ways that we can understand. It talks about uh, heaven as a garden, as a city, as a kingdom. Because gardens, cities, kingdoms, they're familiar to us. We We understand And then we create these bridges of understanding of of what heaven might be like by starting with something that we know. Why am I spending so much time on this? It's, It's very important because if we don't figure this out, we'll just disregard everything that the Bible has to say about this realm called heaven. And many people make this mistake of assuming that since figurative language must be used, that they are only analogies and nothing more. They have no actual correspondence to reality. But that just isn't true because if, 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 if that's the way it is, they're very poor analogies. And I don't think God makes mistakes. I don't think he's misspoken. Of course, we can press an analogy too far, but because God authored the scriptures, we can assume that he's used the very best figurative language to explain a thing which is yet to be seen with our own eyes. And as we'll see, it will become abundantly clear that this place is a real place with real things, and Jesus is right now preparing a place for us. God's kingdom will come. Physical resurrection will happen. 
There will be cultures and city and gardens, and Jesus will be reigning his kingdom. And so, don't over-spiritualize. Recognize that it's figurative, but don't over-spiritualize these descriptions of heaven because some of them, if not many of them, will actually end up being simple, factual statements. It's important to know that that very well could be the case. And I mention this because if we don't analyze ourselves as we analyze Scripture, we'll become completely lost and we'll miss out on the value, the reason why God tells us all this stuff. In our modern context, we're doing this all the time because we're so influenced by the prestige of science and its achievements that we begin to think that precise, literal, scientific descriptions are the only descriptions of value, and it's just not true. Figurative language is not just mere adornment, or worse than that, false. It is describing reality in its own way, okay? God's build a world with the possibility of analogy to describe it. And this is what he gives us. It's a necessary part of human language, and he uses it frequently to communicate real truth. So important to get that. So as we ask these what questions, remember that. Remember that although we don't have all the detail, we are not blind, but we can see clearly enough to hope very, very well. So let's do that together. Okay, stand up for a sec. Uh, Go ahead and put the scripture up here. We're going to stand while we read the word of God. It's going to give us a little break in the action here. This is from John 14. If you've got your Bibles, you can read along or you can follow looking at the screen. The word of God says this. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. This is Jesus speaking. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. And you know that the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and you have seen him. This here is one of the greatest promises of all Scripture. Yet historically, it's been misquoted, right? If you don't recognize it, this is the part of the Bible that tells us we're getting a mansion. Although you didn't read mansion. Here's what happened. In the translation from the Greek into the Latin, somebody decided to use the Latin word, which can be translated mansion. And then the New King James Version came along and took that word and translated it from Latin into English. And the, New King, or the King James Version of the Bible we use for hundreds and hundreds of years still is in places, and the translation of mansions is there. The actual word is probably rooms. Sorry for those of you who were expecting a McMansion when you got to heaven, but alas, you have but a room. Well, not necessarily, and the reason is this. Here we have figurative language. We're not actually talking about one giant log cabin in the woods where everybody lives. Those are called cults. 
We're not talking about one giant residential skyscraper in the middle of downtown, of which God puts his names in big gold letters across the front. You'll get that in a sec. Okay. Heaven is not any of those things. This figurative language. And here's what the metaphor is telling us. Heaven, the new creation, the new earth, is God's dwelling place. It is his great estate in which we have the privilege to dwell with him. Within the dwelling place, Jesus himself is preparing, he's crafting a unique space for us, for you and for me. Think about this for a sec. He's thinking of us and he knows us and he knows all of our intricacies and he's preparing a place within the dwelling place of God for us. He's carving out room for us. And he's thinking about what would we enjoy as we eat and we work and we express ourselves and we create and we converse and we play and we run and we explore and we adventure. And he's thinking of us. And he's thinking about fitting us in to the dwelling place of God as individuals created in the image of that God. If your mind is not blowing up right now, you don't get what I'm saying. This promise is that Jesus is preparing room for you in God's eternal house. This is an unbelievable promise. But it can be a little bit scary too. I was sitting at dinner this week and I asked my wife, when you think about heaven, what comes to mind? What do you think about? And she was really honest and, and her response I don't think is uncommon because I've had this thought too. She, she said something like this, sometimes when I think about heaven I get a little bit scared because I'm not sure what it will be like. She said, I really like my life here my friends here, my family here. And it scares me a little bit to think about the next life. Here's what she's hinting at. And we all wrestle with this. It's the propensity to explicitly or implicitly prefer the known commodity over the faith commodity. We prefer the known over that which takes faith. So here's what I told her. If you like this world, you are going to love the next project. It, it, if you like the people in your life now, just wait until that sin is gone. If, if you like the way a tree looks here, you just wait until decay is taken out of the picture. You are going to love what he's got next. Because he created the first and he's creating the next. He's preparing the new earth. Moreover, he's preparing it for you. And he knows you better than anyone else knows you. He knows you better than you know yourself. He knows the things that you think you want but you don't really need. And he's going to prepare a place for you with all that in mind. And you know what else? No one loves you as much as Jesus loves you. No one loves you more. And so I know it's scary, but you can trust Jesus. Look back at verse 1. That's what he's saying. 
believe in me, or believe in God, believe also in me. Here's here's how you could also translate that, because the Greek word is the same. Trust in God, trust also in me. He who created all things, everything that you love in this world, he is creating heaven. But it's a faith commodity, so you have to trust. Not an idea, you trust a person. Believe in an idea, you trust a person. That's what he's saying. Trust me, I'm going there. I'll be waiting for you. I'll bring you to where I am. And I'm preparing a place for you. So you guys know by now that one of my favorite authors is C.S. Lewis. Can you imagine if Amazon was around when C.S. Lewis was writing and he was still writing? This is what it would be like. I've read so much of what he's written and I hear he's writing a new book. Now here's, here's the deal. I'm not gonna be like, ah, gosh, not sure if I should pre-order that on Amazon. Not sure if it's gonna be any good. I know it's gonna be good. I know it is because I know everything he's done up to this point. And I know his character. And I know how he loves the people he's writing for. And I know that he's guided by God the Father. And so I can trust. I pre-order that book, no problem. I completely trust that the next thing C.S. Lewis writes is going to be pretty darn good. That's what it's like to trust Jesus. Only times it by what the biggest number you could think of. Because this guy created everything. Colossians said, Jesus was at the, be- at the beginning and through him all things were created. I trust Jesus. A guy named Randy Alcorn said this, On the cross, Jesus experienced the hell that we deserve so that for eternity we can experience the heaven that we don't deserve. You can trust that guy. Look at the cross. Look at what he did for you. You can trust him. That's what he's saying. And I'm going to prepare a place for you. So how great will this place be? Well, in order to get a clear picture of this eternal heaven promised by Jesus and elsewhere in like the book of Revelation and the Old Testament, we must understand that this place will one one day be centered on the new earth. Okay? We must understand that this this place that we envision, that we try to picture, is a real place. This is great news. You don't need to look up to the clouds to picture heaven. You just look all around you. And you imagine this without sin, corruption, decay, suffering, or the curse. It's going to be a lot more like that than it is going to be looking up into the clouds. I was reminded of this this week. I was down at a conference in Reno, a church planners conference, and I was flying home, and I was sitting by the window, looking out the window, and it was kind of scattered clouds, and I was looking at the clouds, and for the first moment, I was like, yes, clouds. Those are amazing. Then about 30 seconds later, I'm like, I'm kind of bored at looking at the clouds. They all look the same. It's only one color. And you know what I did? I stopped looking at the clouds and I looked right through, there was breaks in the cloud, at the earth below. And I said, now that's interesting. 
I could get on board with that. I could look at that all day. That is incredible. This picture, this place, is the new earth. So what is it going to be like when we see the new earth? Well, sometimes when I think about, uh, when I imagine the new earth, I think about a canyoning trip I went on in Interlaken, Switzerland. Anybody been to Interlaken, Switzerland? Adventurers, great. You should go. I can't believe I'm more adventurous than you guys. Everybody, all the adventurers are out. It's a sunny day. <laughs> okay. Uh, Interlaken, Switzerland. It's beautiful. It's heaven on earth. And canyoning is this incredible, dangerous experiment where a bunch of guys from Australia and New Zealand drive you up a mountain in a VW van and you get to the top of the mountain. You're not sure the van was going to make it, but you get there and then they're like, all right, follow me, buddy. And you go in and uh, you drop down into, thanks, Nolan, you drop down into uh, this literal canyon and the slopes are so steep that they've carved out these deep trenches in the mountain and it's just this series of waterfalls. Huge waterfalls, one after the other after the other. And what you do is, is you either jump off one waterfall into a pool that's usually probably, you know, the landing area is about this big. And they're like, all right, just land right there. And sometimes they literally say, okay, jump, and I'm going to push you against that rock so that you can get the right angle coming into the pool. <laughs> so you jump, they push you, you bounce off the rock, and you're right in the pool. Beautiful stuff there. And uh, I might just preach the rest of the sermon. <laughs> Preaching about heaven is a lot like being Australian. I've said that before. It's beautiful there. And yeah, you jump right off these things and you think you're going to die every time, but then you don't. It's amazing. Heaven's like that. Can never die again. And uh, so we did this whole thing. It was, it was great. I'm getting out of it. And uh, every time you come up to the next ledge and you look out, it was, it, it, there was this sound that you heard. It was like a gasp as you saw this new vista for the first time. And then your heart's pounding so fast because you might die. And they tell you before you drop in, like, oh, yeah, don't worry about it. A couple years ago, we had to shut this place down because there was a big flood and a lot of people died. But we are way better with the technology now, okay? So your heart's pounding. You're gasping at these vistas. You're jumping. The adrenaline. Uh, you feel like you're fully alive because you have to be. You have to be so aware. And it's a bit like what I think heaven will be like. Multiply that again by a very big number. But that's what it'll be like. Just these constant gasps as your breath is taken away. You'll be fully alive, fully aware. Everything will be functioning as it's meant to function. Your eyes will see, your ears will hear, your nose will smell as it was always meant as you explore God's new earth. It's unreal. New sights, new places, new people. And of course, God himself will be in this place. And yet, even if you're tracking with me, you can't possibly imagine how great this place will be. You're so far from it. Even if you're tracking with me and, and, and you're feeling what I'm talking about, 
we're so far. We're just, just tasting it. Another way that, that might help you just explain the magnitude of, of, of heaven is, is by thinking about what I call the dance between hope and reality. The dance between hope and reality. You see, we're all made to hope. And there's reality out there that's meant to satisfy our hope. So imagine hoping for something, even in this life. Just hope, think about something you've hoped for in this life. Maybe it's a Jamaican vacation. That, people still like Jamaica? Yeah, I think so. Bobsleds. Okay, Jamaican vacation. And you plan for it, you wait for it, and then you go and it delivers both. You have real hope for it, and then, and then that hope brings energy, and that hope brings anticipation, and, and then you go to the place, and to some extent, it satisfies that which you hoped for, right? But we, we've all had this experience. I know I have many a time. The reality of the thing almost never perfectly matches the hope for the thing. It's, it's always just kind of lets you down a little bit, right? And the reason I know that is because most of us, as soon as we get back, the next day at work, we're online, we're searching for the next vacation. I gotta get the next one on the books. Because it just didn't quite fulfill uh, everything that I had hoped for. And this happens with so many things. This happens with marriage. This happens with kids. This happens with your job. This happens with friends. It just never quite lives up to the hope. Now, imagine a place in which all hope disappeared. And the reason it disappears is because the reality of the thing so outweighs your ability even to hope that you never hope again. That's heaven. The scale between hope and reality is so lopsided there. The reality of the thing that you don't even realize it's happened, but you're going to stop hoping because you've arrived. And it fully satisfies every longing that you've ever had. You can't actually imagine it because you do not know what it means to live without hope because you've never had reality fulfill your desire in the way that heaven will. But you can kind of get how crazy that is. The hope of heaven will be flooded by the reality of heaven. That's beautiful. This is what God is planning for us. It's what Jesus is preparing for us. And yet, however grand we can imagine that might be, however magnificent heaven is, however full it is, we'll never get bored, we'll never get tired. It will continue to deliver on any hope that we can have of it. So hope, hope all you, dream. Don't worry, you're not going to out-hope heaven. It's like being so hungry uh, that you go out to your favorite restaurant, but then you don't come home and grab a snack. I know that you do it. 
Or is that just me? Okay. Heaven is like wanting to kiss your, your high school crush, and then you finally kiss. And yet not thinking about it. I wonder what it's like to kiss somebody else. All that is gone. You are completely satisfied, completely fulfilled. There will be no unmet desire. Desire will not cease. There will just be no unmet desire. It's unfathomable. That is the goodness of God. And to think, just think about yourself now for a sec. You don't deserve that. I'm so unworthy that Jesus should prepare a place like that for me. I'm almost crushed by this promise because I know myself. I know how little I think of Him. How little I give to Him. I know how much I think of myself. And yet, He gives that to me. I'm not worthy of it. And yet, He gives it to me. My friends, that's what grace is. And if you don't understand grace, it's because you either don't understand how rotten you are, or you don't understand how great God is and the place he's preparing. There's nothing about me that deserves that Jesus would do any of this for me. Now you say, how do you follow that? Well, (laughs) I have a long list of specifics. that I might not be able to get to. In fact, I won't be able to, but let me try to give you a few of them. Get your pens out. We're going to go through this very fast. What will we see in heaven? Well, here's the deal. We'll see a new thing. We'll see a new thing. We'll see a new earth. We'll have new bodies. We'll see a new thing. But here's how new things work. New doesn't mean completely different. So there's two things that we'll see in the new earth. There'll be a continuity. God is committed to this place. And so there's a continuity, which means the devil is not one. He has not made God scrap this. God will redeem this. He'll resurrect this. He'll renew this. Now, redeem does not mean that um, it won't be different. It just means that there's continuity between now and then. The other thing is, and it's related, is this concept of familiarity and dissimilarity. Through the continuity, it's hard uh, to realize, or sorry, when you look at this world, it's just hard to realize how much sin has corrupted this planet. So uh, what'll be similar and dissimilar, what of that is continuity and what of that is just, this is how it always was, it's gonna be hard to know. But he hasn't given up on this. Everything will be familiar in a sense, but not familiar in another sense. We see this in Jesus' resurrected body. Um, Some people didn't even recognize him at first. But then after they realized it was him, they're like, oh yeah, it's you. And his body had changed. Walls didn't seem to be an issue for him anymore. He walked through those. But he ate, and they could touch him. And he had the scars. And so you see that familiarity and that dissimilarity. Heaven, Heaven is like that. It's like the best of this world and so much more. We'll recognize friends, 
family. We'll remember at least parts of, of this life. We'll have memories. We'll share inside jokes, familiarity, continuity. We're not completely gone. It's not like all this has hit reset. That's not what it is. It's not the matrix. But we will understand We will experience things, even people in a totally different, fuller way. We'll finally understand our spouses. We'll finally actually get those inside jokes, like how funny they actually are. There'll be trees and rivers, streets, buildings, flowers, grass. Be very familiar, but yet it'll be new and unfamiliar at the same time. So, so when we see this expression new, the Greek word that's actually used is less about new versus old. It's less about that, and it's more about new in quality. It's like a superior nature, a superior character that this new earth has. We can only hint at it now, and the language and the analogy of Scripture Only hints at it, but one day we'll experience and be like, oh, that's what he meant by new. It's familiar, it's unfamiliar, but it's continuity. So, uh, when the Bible tells us that God will create a new heaven, that's talking about the sky, and a new earth, and that we'll have new physical bodies, it's all connected. So you can't have a new physical body without any ground to stand on. We're not disembodied spirits. We're not ghosts. We're not angels. We're new physical bodies, just like this one, but not like this one. So we need ground that's like this ground, but not like this ground. And and what it's going to create in us is, is this new appreciation for nature, like we've never appreciated it before. We'll have this uh, intimate relationship with nature. Um, it's going to help us to understand. Employees at the national parks, they're no longer going to be hard to understand in the new heavenly reality. It's going to be like, oh, I get it too. I love nature as much as you do. That was a joke, and it was really funny when I wrote it down. Okay, so, sorry if you work for the national parks. But they get it, and we'll get it like them. That's the idea, okay? And we'll have these new bodies, uh, it's, not, it's not like the Gnostics or the Buddhists or the Hindus or, or spiritualists um, who kind of think, okay, when we die, we just become nothing. We become spirits or souls. No. Christianity is always taught that, yes, we'll have transformed bodies, but we can touch them, we can eat, even if we can walk through walls like Jesus. A quick example of this, because... Just please laugh at this joke. Uh, I have this picture on my phone when my dad calls, um, and it's from when he was in his 20s. It's a picture of him and my, my oldest sister, Kim. And uh, every, time it, every time it pops up on my phone when he calls, I just start laughing. Because I know it's my dad, but it doesn't look like my dad. Because if you know my dad now, he's, he's, he's so bald. He's like so bald. But in this picture, he's got just an amazing head of hair. A little bouffant, just a little, just a little tuck on the sides, uh, and it's kind of reddish. Which is, oh my gosh! If you saw this picture, you'd be like, "That's where Grayson gets it. That's Grayson's grandfather." 
And so this, this picture pops up. His skin looks different. He's in great shape. And, um, and in a lot, it's still pretty good shape for a 65-year-old. Uh, if I didn't know, if it didn't say my dad, I might see that photo and, and not even recognize him. Like if, I, like if that picture was on a billboard and I was just driving by, I might not even recognize that's a picture of my dad. So it's what our bodies will be like a little bit. Except actually that's not the best analogy for what our bodies will be like uh, because that's primarily about turning back the clock and that's not what new creation is. It's actually more like turning forward the clock. So here's a better analogy. Imagine I hopped in my DeLorean, I head back uh, to, the, to the 1960s, I think, and I show to a 10-year-old Marcus Wayne Evanger, that's my dad, I show him a picture, that same picture that's on my phone, I show him that picture. At first he'd say like, what's that device in your hand? Don't worry, I'm from the future. I'd show him a picture, and I'd be like, hey, do you know who this is? And he'd be like, no. Be like, it's you. He'd be like, no way, get right out of town. That's how they used to talk in the 60s. No, it's you. Uh, that's totally you. Trust me. He'd be like, wow. Same self, still my dad. Same body. Now it's fully grown. And here's the kicker. It's radically more mature. You see? So the continuity and the similarity is there between the 10-year-old looking forward to the 25-year-old. But it's also dissimilar. It's, it's dissimilar because it's radically matured physically, spiritually, emotionally. And that's what our new bodies will be like. Like we're 10-year-olds now and we look forward to what we're like when we're fully matured. Um, gosh, so much good stuff. <laughs> I might just post my sermon notes online. Like how do you fit eternity <laughs> into, you know, okay. Will we be male and female in heaven? I'm just throw some rapid answers and we could talk about these more later. Yes. Yes. Now, half of the room is now thinking the next question. Well, do we get to have sex? I feel like I should answer this one. Except I'm not going to answer it. <laughs> I'm going to let a prominent Catholic philosopher named Peter Kreft answer it. Here's what he says. I'll give you his email if you need it. I don't know it, but I'll find it. Okay, he says this. First of all, sex is something we are, not something we do. I do not think that we'll be doing capitulation, that means intercourse, in heaven. But we will be busy being ourselves, and that includes being men and women. We're not genderless gendlings. And then he says, viva la difference. Okay, take it up with Peter if you have an issue. I feel like that was one that some of you were hoping to get, so I wanted to give it to you today. I don't know exactly the answer there, but it's definitely different. And the reason I think it's different, one of the things that we see in Scripture is Jesus actually says well, but the, there won't be no marrying or marriage in heaven. And I think part of that is because the mission of marriage is over. And man, this is a whole other sermon, but I'll give it to you quickly. Because, I think, the mission of marriage, if we understand it rightly, is in many ways to preach the gospel through how we love the most intimate person in our life. And so since most people can't, before they have a relationship with God, understand what that might be like, they look at marriage 
And if you do it well, it's a picture of what our relationship with God looks like. That is one of the huge missions of marriage. The other part of marriage, definitely, is procreation. Is that the only part of marriage? But I think both of those things, in some sense, cease. Because everybody that will be in heaven already has a relationship with God. So they don't need a picture of it to help them realize what it could be and what it is. So many jokes here. Okay, it's not, it's not like we're going to be really wanting to have sex and we can't have sex. It's going to be like, that desire is fulfilled in other ways. We'll still have our relationships, our intimate, most intimate relationship. I think we'll still be with um, our spouse or spouses that we had over our lifetime, but it will change. So, so many more nuggets in here if you want to if you want to talk more about this later, okay. What will it feel like? Will we have emotions in heaven? The answer is yes, but not in their present form. Because in their present form, emotions tend to control us. They tend to drive us. So I think God created emotions. I think we'll have emotions. But they'll be Just as passionate, but much less passive, meaning they won't control us. So God will wipe away every tear of pain and suffering and sadness, but he won't wipe away every tear of joy. It's good news. We're not just emotionless robots in heaven. We will be free in heaven. And we'll even be free to sin, theoretically, although we'll never exercise that freedom. Got a great quote here, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna pass it up. What will we do in heaven? What will we be doing in the new heavens and the new earth? Will we be free to do whatever we want? Will we be able to fly? Will we be able to lift the heaviest of all possible rocks? Will we be able to see things as God sees them? Will we be gods? In short, the answer to all of those questions, no. I don't think so. Because ultimate freedom is not equal to ultimate joy. That is a lie that has been, been, that has been told from the garden till today. That ultimate freedom is equal to ultimate joy. It's just not true. We will be free only to the extent that we are allowed to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That is what we are created to do. That's what we'll be able to do. If that means we get to fly... Okay, maybe. I'm just not counting on it. So you just want to be careful what you count on so you're not disappointed. I don't think we'll be able to fly. We won't be like God. We'll get to worship Him, though. Will we know everything in heaven? Praise be to God, we will not. Which means we get to learn more and more about God and about each other. And that's great. Only God can endure with knowing everything and not get bored. We can't. And so we get to learn, which is connected to my next question. Will we get bored in heaven? I think a lot of people think this. Uh, Sigmund Freud, believe it or not, only occasionally comes up with these nuggets of wisdom sandwiched between two mountains of nonsense, but he gets this one right. He says that everyone needs two things in life, to make it worth living, love and work. So in heaven, we get to do that, love and work. 
There are six things that never get boring in the new earth, just as there are six things that never get boring on this earth. Knowing and loving, that's two, yourself. Knowing and loving your neighbor. Knowing and loving God. And since persons are subjects, not objects, we never exhaust that subject. And so we never get bored. Peter Kraft, the guy you're supposed to email about the sex thing, he said this, people, God, even ourselves, we're like magic cows that keep giving fresh milk forever. (laughs) Meaning we never get bored figuring out how to love and to know these great three things. Now, here's what's so cool. When Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment? Guess what he said? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, to love your neighbor as yourself. The same two commandments that lead us to the good life now are the same two that will lead to the good life extended eternally in the future new earth. And it'll never get boring. I hope that's encouraging to you. So you can start now doing exactly what we're going to do in heaven. Continuity of purpose. Here's another important thing. Um, You say, well, will people all be the same in heaven? The answer is no, thank God. We'll all be different. We'll all be equal in dignity and value and in the way God loves us, but we won't all be the same. We'll all have different things that we're good at. We'll have unique tasks that we're given, unique responsibilities, unique commitments, unique obligations designed for us by Jesus who goes to prepare them for us. And then when we fulfill them, we will experience a unique joy which only comes by fulfilling the things which God gave you to do. And guess what? That's exactly how it works on this earth. So we practice now, figuring out what those unique things are, living them out, and we complement one another so that we might glorify God to the full. That's how it works now, and that's how it will work then. And we will sing, yes, but it won't be a never-ending Chris Tomlin concert. Praise be to God. That guy stole my best friend's girlfriend one time, so sorry, Chris Tomlin. (laughs) Tell you that story later. It'll be more like the sound of music, where we'll just start singing as we're picking some daisies. It'll be great. And everybody can sing, not just Nolan. Okay, so what does this mean now? I know this is a lot, but like I said, I'm trying to figure out how to put eternity into one sermon. Um, Here's here's what we got to know. This doesn't just affect then, like I said at the beginning. This affects how we live right now. The local church is important because when we realize that Christ has died for us, and that we realize that he's the first fruits of the resurrection, and that he's preparing a place for us, and we accept by faith what he has done, and we receive the forgiveness that comes by it, then we begin living heaven right now. And one of the main places that we do that now is in the local church. So find a local church. This is a heavenly family. Be active, be regular, unselfishly participate in the life of the local, gospel-centered, Bible-believing 
resurrection-proclaiming church, and you're getting a glimpse into the life of heaven. That's why we named our church Sedaris, which means heavenly body. You could also call it the heavenly assembly. You're practicing, you're experiencing heaven now in small ways through the church. Though imperfect, we're getting a glimpse. Second, concern for heaven always feeds concern for the earth. Randy Alcorn says it this way, hearing echoes of Eden and approaching footfalls of the new earth reminds us that the earth matters, our bodies matter, animals matter, trees matter, matter matters because God created them all and he intends to glorify himself through all of it by redeeming it, restoring it, resurrecting it. He's not giving up on us and he's not giving up on his creation. Third, our work matters. Our work matters. Because you see, when you read in Scripture about the new earth, and you talk about a city, and you see in passages like Isaiah 60, talking about the nations bringing in their things into the new Jerusalem, what we're told, what that that tells us, even, even, even cultures that were not Christian cultures or godly cultures, what you see is that All things God redeems for his goodness. He brings it all in. He brings it all into the new creation as long as it is not evil and as long as it brings glory to him. And so your work matters. Your art matters. Your music matters. The technology that you create matters. Poetry, literature, uh, relationships. it It all matters. It all brings glory to God. It is not wiped clean. And so I'll finish by saying saying this. Uh, Moses prayed in Psalm 90. God, establish the work of my hands. As we think about the what of heaven, as you picture it, ask him now to establish the work of your hands. That this life, it's not a waste. There is purpose that continues eternally. God, establish the work of my hands both now and into your future kingdom. So much more that could be said. But I hope it's a beautiful at least start to dreaming, imagining this place, this real place that God is preparing for us, for all those who love and follow Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, we, we know this is so much to take in. I know it probably felt a bit like a fire hydrant, coming at these folks. God, I just pray that, that some of it would stick and that, that, that they would be just overwhelmed by this promise that you've made. Jesus, that you are right now thinking of us by name and preparing a room for us in your Father's house. God, that, that you did already everything that needed to be done so that we could come follow you and be with you where you are now and in the new earth when you bring it with you. God, help, help that to sink in. God, God, help us to love the hope of heaven. Help, help us to learn to meditate on these truths. Help us to aim for heaven that we might get earth thrown in as well. And help us to realize that it's all connected. 
that it's not escapist, but all of it now and then is for your glory and our good. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.